the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If ever there was an athlete whose name was synonymous with focus and commitment, it would be Michael Jordan. In his book, Driven from Within, a friend of his, Fred Whitfield, who was the president of the Charlotte Bobcats, tells how this was true of Jordan, not just on the court, but off the court as well. He recounts one night that um, he and Jordan were going to go out, and Jordan was at his home and asked to borrow a jacket before they departed for the evening. Whitfield said, go shop in my closet, and Jordan disappeared for some time. Jordan opened the closet and found that half the closet was filled with Nike gear. The other half was filled with Puma gear. Nike was Jordan's endorser, and all of those things had been given to his friend because of their relationship. The Puma gear was given from another dear friend who also played for the NBA. After shopping around, Jordan came out silently with all the Puma gear from the closet in either arm, laid it on the living room floor of Fred's house, and then quietly walked into the kitchen. He emerged with a butcher's knife, walked back into the living room, and proceeded to shred all of the Puma gear in front of Fred on his living room carpet. Then he picked it up silently, took it out, and threw it all in the garbage, and walked back in and looked Fred in the eye and said, Fred, I don't want to catch you in anything other than Nike. You can't ride the fence. And with that, they departed for the evening. It was quite a bold move and captures the essence of focus and commitment, certainly in this athlete, that applied to all aspects of his life. I share that this morning because I'd like for us to spend some time thinking about focus and commitment as it applies to our faith. And more particularly, let's do so in the context of our reading from Philippians that we heard moments ago. So if you turn there with me in your Bible or follow along on the screens, I believe we find three lessons therein that call before us our continued commitment to Jesus in the course of this life. Our reading picks up in verse 7, but I trust your biblical knowledge calls to mind that Prior to this, six verses prior, Paul gives his own pedigree, his own background, his own education, his own status, and in his own Jordan-esque way, he, he lays all that out not as a way to boast, but then to turn around and shred that in front of the Philippians to say none of that really matters in comparison to knowing Jesus. These verses are um, weighty. But oftentimes we've heard them enough or we hear the language of it enough that we kind of forget um, the full depth of the words that are found therein. Especially in verse 8, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, that word rubbish that Paul uses for us sounds kind of like a tidy term. We think of rubbish, we think of trash or things we put in a waste paper basket, um, maybe even in the recycle bin. But for Paul, that word is very weighted. Um, rubbish there 
could be a, a whole host of ways it could be translated. Um, trash is certainly one of them. Excrement is another. Dung, detestable. The list goes on and on. Paul uses a very strong language to paint a very clear picture of what he counts everything else in life in comparison to knowing Jesus. Now, um, when we look at that, we think, okay, well, you know, that's, that's pretty strong. Um, but remember, Paul's not talking about um, some sin or something that he's done. He's pointing to everything that he should have every right to be proud of. But he says, no, I count that as detestable, apart from or in comparison to knowing Jesus. What he's driving towards there in verse 9 we see is namely that the Jews that have entered into the church in Philippi and many of the early churches began to set up this kind of duality that knowing Jesus and the grace found in him was important, but so was keeping the law, that they should go hand in hand. And so Paul, in his own way, is basically trying to say that's not true, that the righteousness that's brought forth is not because we do these things alongside the grace of what Jesus has done, but the grace of Jesus is sufficient, therefore our knowledge and, and love and our nearness to him will produce the righteousness that the law itself could never fully do. So he makes this point, and then he jumps to another point and basically says, you know, of course I count all these things as detestable, as rubbish, as, as just, you know, profusely worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. Now, when we hear the word know or know Jesus, instantly we think of a knowledge of, a greater study of, a greater depth of. But the biblical word for know means something very different and very specific. When you think about to know, let me give you one place. This will cue it instantly, right? Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's a different level of know than to know your word or to memorize or to understand something. That's what Paul's talking about. This intimate relationship with God, God incarnate Jesus Christ, that um, not unlike the closest relationships we have in life is so worth it that everything else pales in comparison. That's what Paul's talking about. That we know and understand Jesus and the only comparable way we can look at that is in the deepest human relationships we have some knowledge of. And so Paul continues on to gain Christ, to be found in him. Deeply relational language here comes through drawing near to Jesus who produces this righteousness in us, not that we do so ourselves. Now, um, I know this is somewhat uh, technical, but it, it's to an end, namely that Paul's trying to elucidate what this commitment to Jesus looks like. Namely, it's so deeply relational that everything else is just in the rearview mirror. It's so deeply personal that everything else just pales in comparison. And so Paul can say, for that reason, everything else just doesn't matter. So what does that have to say to us? I think, um, if nothing less, it should give us a momentary pause to say, that's what we're called to pursue. I'd hope it also may convict us to say, could I say of myself that I could say Paul's words with all integrity? I count everything else as rubbish in comparison to a pursuit of that deep relationship with Jesus Christ. I think most of us would assent to that. Well, sure. I mean, we're Christians. We've come to faith. We've been baptized. That's, that's what we believe and hold to. And that's a good starting place. 
And I think that's worthy. But perhaps the question for us is, what, as we look at our commitment to Jesus, can we say those words of our lives? And more importantly, what does our life say of that? What does your bank account say and mine? What does your calendar say and mine? What excites and impassions you that you think about and dwell upon? And what do I? I know I'm meddling, but the time is short. We don't have time to kind of get around with assent to faith, but we're called to apply our faith. And if that passion or zeal to count all else as countless, rubbish, whatever it may be, accolades, upward mobility, nicer life, whatever our pursuits may be, if, if we can't fully embrace that, it's perhaps that we've not fully embraced what it means to draw near to Jesus, to be known by and to know him, as Paul uses that language. To know Jesus intimately, as Paul and the saints of old did, it led them to do some pretty extraordinary things. Some left society all itself, going into the very desert so that nothing else in life could distract them. Others stared in the face of death itself, unflinching, because they knew that even life itself paled in comparison and could not rob them of the union they had with God. It led others to push back and become social pariahs and regimes of this world, knowing that the upward call of bringing union with Christ and making him known was worth anything that they gave up. The question perhaps it should lead us to is how do we get there? How do we get to that level of passion and commitment that Paul talks about, that we see modeled in the heroes of the faith, to use that language from Hebrews, down through the ages? They did extraordinary things, but they weren't born extraordinary people. It came through decisions they made. And how they get there, I believe, is before us in verse 10 and following, if we turn back there for just a moment. So Paul concludes this whole thought, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, so that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, any means possible, I too might attain resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul readily and humbly admits he's not attained this, he's not perfect as Jesus is, but he presses on daily to make it his own, to make Jesus his own. Paul draws a clear line that commitment would lead him by any means necessary, down any path necessary to make Jesus his own, he writes, and he knows the depth of what that cost for Jesus to make him his own. He's painfully aware that his righteousness according to the law led him to persecute the very friends of Jesus and to be bought with a price came at a high price for him. And Paul says, I'll do whatever it takes to continue down that road. And he doesn't just say that to say it, he means it. In fact, we see elsewhere in his epistles, Paul was flogged, he was stoned, he's cast out of cities, he's shunned by his dearest friends that he walked closely with in his days according to the law. He willingly embraces all of it for the pursuit of being made as Jesus is. And how does he get there? How did St. Augustine get there? How did Teresa of Avila get there? How did Antony of the Desert and Benedict? And the list goes on and on. How did they get to such a commitment? What led them to such a place? First, as with all of us, they embraced Jesus in their own lives. They came to him through the waters of baptism. 
but then they truly pursued a life in him every moment thereafter. Simply put, they reordered their very lives in pursuit of Jesus every step along the way. Think about your calendar. Think about your bank statements. Think about your passions. If we've embraced Jesus with our heart, if we have been baptized, if we do that, then from that moment, it's a walking near to Jesus to reorder everything else around him. And that's not easy. Benedict wrote to his monks um, in a monastic setting who were drawn away from the cares of the world a, wo a wonderful word and a timely word that challenges both them and us. He said, a commitment to pray that never gets down to the details of schedule is hardly a commitment at all. Commitment to pray that never gets down to the details of schedule is hardly a commitment at all. Now, he's writing to people who've arguably given up everything. And he's saying, and yet, if you get lost, stay the course. We're called to move things around in this life as believers for Jesus rather than moving Jesus around the things of this life and fitting him in accordingly. We're called to make certain things unmovable. When 7 o'clock hits on Monday morning that I got to get going or 5 or 4 or in cases of Father Greg, 3 a.m., um, that same drive that gets us out should be the drive that gets us here on Sunday, that should get us here to be in Jesus' presence. We should schedule times of prayer that we block off just like we do the most important meetings with the top-level people in our work or field. We should pursue a knowledge of God's Word, and it should excite us in the same way that getting to the end of day and, and opening your favorite beverage and hopping down in front of your favorite show should give us a sigh of relief. We should reorder our lives, simply put, in pursuit of Jesus, to serve Him abundantly, to jump in when we have the chance of which, in every church, ours being no exception, there are a multitude of spots to fill. To ruthlessly eliminate hurry, to hurry into the presence of Jesus, and to do them in community, because God's chosen to use the church as the mechanism that he's ordained until Jesus returns. To reorder our life, that's the key. It's not easy, but that's the secret sauce. There's no mystery about it. And requirement is one of commitment, to do the things that build community, that build us up. And it's not easy, as Paul will readily admit if we turn to the end of our reading, back in verse 13 and following. Paul states that um, he's not made this prize his own, he's not achieved this end, but he emphatically states that forgetting all that's behind... And looking toward what is ahead, he presses on and reaches for this prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he ends with this timeless challenge. Let those of you who are mature, if in any way you think or act otherwise, God will reveal that. Hold fast, hold true to what you've attained in your pursuit of your relationship with Jesus. Paul's language is clear. He's counted the cost, and he's not looked back. He's not wondering what could have been or what he sacrificed to do these things, to make this his own, what life he's left behind, what he might have become as the chief of the, the, the school of the Pharisees that he was a part of, or, or what job he may have left behind to be a tent maker just to support himself so that he could do what God had called him to do. In his own way, Paul gives us kind of a Jordan-esque call, you can't ride the fence. You can't ride the fence. And that's a final reminder for us, I believe. 
one that reminds us that the hardest thing we must do in our upward call with Christ Jesus is to count the cost and to see everything else in light of it, counting it as rubbish, that we also reorder our very lives accordingly. And then lastly, that we resist the urge to look back, we resist the urge to pivot and do other things. What this looks like for us more often in Western culture is we have to resist passivity. We've got to resist thinking, well, you know, I, I, someone else will take that sign-up slot. Uh, someone else will bring diapers or show up to Good News Club. There's, there's 200 people in this church. Surely someone else will do it. But um, we've, we've got to jump in and say, no, I'll do it. Um, I, I can make that time. I'm going to make that happen. I'm going to be there for that. Um, so much so that it should spur us on that we're creating new things all the time because things get so filled up that I want to serve, but everything else is full. Great, let's go start something else. Um, that's how the church has taken off in the two-thirds world. Um, the bishop gets the call that he has a new church on Monday morning that started on Sunday afternoon because they went to the adjacent village and just gathered everyone together and talked about Jesus. It's incredible when we think about it. We've got to have such a singular focus upon him. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to you along with myself. We must be in this together. And that's the hard part. We've got to live in this world, but not of this world. And we make hard choices. And we stumble and we fall, but we re-examine our hearts at the end of the day and resolve to continue on again and to make pivots, to turn away from those things, to keep our eyes oriented, and to guard against lesser things every day, knowing that each day is a gift that draws us nearer to the day of Jesus' return. It requires honesty and intentionality. Now let me leave you with a story of a modern-day figure who's done just that, still living across town. Let's call him Bill. Bill wrestled with most of his life with some mental, social, and emotional issues, but he chose to make knowing Jesus his utmost priority. He joined a church, a very prominent church in town, um, and resolved to go every week by himself. The reason he chose it really was twofold. They worshiped God and the beauty of holiness, and they were intentional about knowing God and spending time in God's Word. It also worked that it was nearby his work, where he served as a groundskeeper for a local motel. He'd get there not only on Sundays, but um, at every other chance he could during the course of the week. And his quiet upward pursuit at first went unnoticed. His unkept appearance, some of his social um, miscues led others to just kind of pay no attention to him. In fact, didn't really want to get near him. Um, but they couldn't get around week after week that he'd show up to men's groups. He was there at the Bible studies. He was the last to leave and the earliest to show up. And, and eventually others were a bit convicted and began to want to know about Bill. So they spent some time connecting with him. Um, and as they did, they discovered this beautiful, genuine soul that truly wanted nothing more in this life to know Jesus. And they found out that he rode the bus. Sometimes he couldn't even make the bus ride, so he'd walk miles um, down to the church, and, and he'd stick around and he'd help do whatever was needed. And it convicted some of these more prominent members of society to realize that that, that is what true faith looks like. So they got to know Bill. They began to invite him um, to lunches. They would pick him up and drop him off. He's just one example of what it looks like to count the cost, to pursue that upward call in Christ Jesus wherever we are, and that as we do so, we spur one another on to do 
the same, a demonstration of a commitment to Jesus, an earnest desire for intimacy with Jesus that's evident, that counted everything else as nothing in comparison, that reordered life no matter how hard to make that challenge true in word and deed, and that resisted the urge to just say, sure, maybe I can't make it today or it's not just working in my day to make that happen. It's awe-inspiring, stories like Bill's, in a culture that changes commitment about as regularly as it changes its socks. And it should spur us on to give pause and consideration as to what that means for us. I'll tell you this, I've stood at the bedside in ministry now for uh, a decade by many of those who are going from one life to the next. I've never heard one person, one person talk about that, that, that home they never bought, um, those things that never filled their garage that they hoped they would have purchased, the extra hours they should have put in at the job, the, the title they never quite attained, but they always have a lot of questions about the one they're about to see. Don't let that day be the day you square up with that and think about, should I have committed or been more intentional? That day's today. And that day comes for us we know not when. But the goal in Scripture has never been that we just arrive in the presence of Jesus. You can't find that verse. What you can find is that you arrive in the presence of Jesus more as he is. That is what we're called to, my friends, to be more like Jesus than where he found us when we came to faith in him. That is what Lent reminds us of, and that is what we reflect on next week as we remember we can never outcount the cost of where we're headed in a week as we remember that Jesus gave his all for us, and thus we are called to give nothing less than our all for him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.